The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And today in the Bailey's Harbor studio, I have a very special guest, Helen Del Judas. Now, Helen is the curator of exhibitions and collections at Miller Art Museum in Sturgeon Bay. Previous to this position, she has had an extensive career in museums and galleries in Chicago, Rome, San Diego, and New Orleans. She's also maintains an artistic practice, including oil painting on wood panel and paper, photography, jewelry design, boudoir accessories, and garment making. Her studio serves as a creative space and retail studio. It's nestled in the woods along Lily Bay Creek and surrounded by woods and picturesque farmlands. It sounds just lovely. Where is Lily Bay Creek? So Lily Bay Creek, if you go down the 57, uh, Lily Bay is the first of the five creeks that cross the Highway 57. So it's just outside the farm, right, when the road goes down into the little ditch. Okay. And the creek runs all the way through, you know, across my property. So I get a pretty big stretch of the creek. Wow. Really beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky. So we want to talk about today a lot of things. So we're going to get to a lot of things. And I wanted to start off with your job. I think that everybody is familiar with curator as a position, but what exactly does a curator do? So there are a lot of ways to be a curator. What I do in particular, what most museum curators do, is they strategize a visitor experience with art. And so in doing that, first they decide what is the conversation that is out there in the world right now? What are artists making? What are they talking about? What are they thinking about? And so the first thing I do is I kind of keep my finger on that pulse you know, here in Sturgeon Bay, we have this small community that's up at the top of this rock, right? So I try to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening here, but also within the distance. What might there be out there that would be interesting for the conversation that's going on here to bring that here and let it contribute to what artists are doing here? Okay, so now then do you look at what you already have in the collection Or do you go for outside pieces to bring into the collection to do different things? All of the above. Okay. So the collection is always a common denominator in my decision making. I don't always use a collection every time in an exhibit, but I like to let the collection, pieces in the collection, have a discourse with guest artworks. So when I bring in an artist from, whether it be local or from a distance, I try to use our space to curate out of the collection and let, you know, that something that might pertain, whether that be visually or in its content, that it can have, our collection can have a relevant conversation with artwork that's being made now. Okay, so now the Miller Art Museum, for listeners who don't know, is located in the Sturgeon Bay Library. So when you walk into the library, it's that room kind of off to the right. And I wanted to talk about that location a little bit. I'm a big user of the library, so I do walk through the Miller Art Museum 
quite frequently, but we'll get to that. What I would like to know about your position is how frequently the art on the walls changes. And right now you have an exhibit. It's called Newfangled Influences and Characteristics of the Modern Art Period. So how often you have a special exhibit like that and how often you're changing things up within the museum itself? So I change the exhibits about every eight weeks. Some exhibits are a little shorter than that. The high school salon of art is shorter than that. The kids graduate, the year ends. So we do that in the spring and that's a five-week exhibit. But I do the guest exhibits anywhere from eight weeks to this summer we will have a 10-week period. Okay. In January, I've actually created that the exhibit that goes into January is very, very high in content. We have a local audience. You know, Door County has that dynamic that the audience changes throughout the year. Mm. So I have to consider who's coming right now. How long do I need this artwork to stay to reach all the people that are here now? And how deep of a conversation do those people want to have? Okay. So whose attention might we get? whose artistic desires might we serve. So I have to consider all those elements and the choices I make. Okay. So from January through April, you know, the weather's temperamental. We have a very local resident audience. So I try to provide something that would give people things to think about throughout, you know, over several months. Maybe come back a few times. Maybe have an opportunity if the weather is poor to not come right now, but it'll still be there and I can come when the weather lightens up. So we do have certain parameters that kind of affect Mm -hmm. the choices we make about what's on the wall when. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then after April, you might switch to a different kind of exhibit in anticipation of the season. Right. Well, April is always the High School Salon of Art. Okay. This is going to be the 50th year. It's the oldest traditional show that the Miller Art Museum has. They created that show pretty much the first year they decided to do exhibitions and they've committed to it. And we're still serving the students and their families in that way. So we're really proud of that exhibition. I love doing that exhibition and seeing what the kids make and meeting their families and just seeing them enjoy our gallery in the way that they do. So that time period is always for them. And then they go off, you know, they finish out their year. And then I have two summer, an early summer and a late summer exhibit. Mm -hmm. And then in the fall, we have another tradition show, which is in its 49th year this year, which is the juried annual. Okay. Three years ago, I opened that juried annual eligibility to across the state of Wisconsin. Previous to that, it was only open to the five counties surrounding Door. Okay. But that was a strategic move on our part Mm -hmm. to sort of invite more of the state to participate with Miller Art Museum, Mm. invite more artists to come here, give them motive to come here and meet our artists, let our artists network with artists from across the state. So instead of just sort of keeping these closed doors on the county, we open those doors by opening it to the state of Wisconsin. So it sounds you've used open probably 20 times already. Right. And and what kind of sticks out to me with you, we just met for the first time today, but you seem very open. And the idea of a curator seems very highbrow and unapproachable. And you seem the opposite of that. Is that a thing with curators that they are highbrow normally and unapproachable? 
I'm not sure that they're highbrow and unapproachable. I suppose many of them can be. I have met some like that, and I am definitely not like that. I'm, I'm a little bit unconventional in the curatorial world, but I also came from a background that was in the design and building of museums. So my career started in literally in the woodshop hmm. where I was building the visitor experience of these exhibits and working with the curators to decide how the visitor would move through a gallery and have the experience of that artwork. So I almost kind of come in from this dirty hand sort of position mm -hmm. in building museums from the ground up. Interesting. So it was very purposeful for me to find a museum at this point in my career, like Miller Art Museum, where I could be more accessible to the community. Because you build these exhibits and you, you, you script this content and, you know, it's your job and you put your heart and soul into it. And then you never get to interact with the people who are experiencing it. Mm. So you're a behind the scenes person in museums, in exhibits. Sure. So how do you know how the visitor is experiencing it and if they're experiencing it the way that you intended or hoped for? Right, by feedback and mm. statistics after the fact, by attendance numbers. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's very rare unless you're giving a tour and people come up and shake your hand. Sure. Um, it's very rare that you get that in, in big museums. It's rare that you get that feedback directly. I get that feedback directly from our visitor because I'm on the floor, I'm mm -hmm. around town. I'm, they know that I'm available to them. Okay. Where did you come from? Where did I come from? <laughs> now you did. I, I mean, born. I did read the short bio. I mean, you've been you've been around and the, I've been the a country, lot of the world. Mm -hmm. So, how did you get here, and when did you get here? Well, I was working in the museum industry in San Diego, and I was just looking for a change, and I got recruited. San Diego to Dora County, that is quite a change. yeah, San Diego, California, and um, I was working in my natural history museum there and I actually built was part of the crew that built two museums from the ground up there and mm. we did really big projects and I kind of wanted to scale back from that you know big museums with 500 employees and wanted to scale back from that and I got recruited by a private collector in New Orleans that was in the business of making Mardi Gras happen and he had a collection of over 30,000 carnival costumes dating back to the turn of the century from all over the world. How fun. And he wanted to build a boutique museum in the French Quarter where people could come and see his collection. And so I conceptualized, designed, and built that museum for him. Hmm. But it was not, it was a project for me. Mm -hmm. So I knew that once I was finished with that, that the project from getting the doors open to scripting the tour to you know, getting the gift shop in order and creating the whole experience. We would give it two years and then I would move on. So we did that and it was extraordinary. We had great success. But then I wanted to really think about where I wanted to be for the rest of my career. You know, at this point, what kind of a shift was I going to make? Where were my ambitions? How important was ambition over my daily experience? Mm. And as a person, I really wanted to de-urbanize. I was not interested in living in big cities like New Orleans anymore mm. or San Diego. I had a strong desire to be in the nature and to isolate a little bit more as far as where my life was. So that was an important part of my search. And I literally did a nationwide job search, hmm. targeted areas where I knew I might be happy to live and 
eliminated areas that I didn't want to live and okay. uh, like no East Coast and, yeah. you know, things like that. And um, I applied to, I don't know what it was, something like uh, just under 130 jobs. Oh, and my gosh. I know wow. I'm a master if anyone wants advice on getting a job. I, <laughs> I applied to 130 jobs and hand wrote all my cover letters according to what they were asking for. Wow, and that's a full-time job. Yeah, it was a full-time job. Yes. And, you know, I ended up with three offers and I took Miller Art Museum. It just hmm. most closely aligned with what I thought I could give a museum and what a museum could give me. Okay. Now, how long ago was that? That was in 2019 I started at Miller. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so you must be getting a... F- oh, and then we shut down. And then we shut down. So I was here for, what, six months, and then I was in isolation. <laughs> so <laughs> you got a, a little bit more back to work. You right. Know? right. <laughs> so that must have been quite the experience of what you could do during the pandemic and then now you're fully back to normal, I imagine, and and doing what you envisioned probably doing when you first arrived. Sure. I'm I'm certainly meeting more people that I have not had an opportunity to meet, like in this last year, mm-hmm. has been sort of a deepening of my connection to the community here. You know, in 2019, it was the people that were coming to the museum regularly at that time, and I was meeting them. And then we shut down and a lot of those people ended up disappearing. You mm. know, they they were too old to take chances to be with us or, you know, the audience just kind of shifted a little bit by the time that the pandemic lightened up. And so, you know, it's been for the museum, like any other business, it's been a rebuilding of your identity and and what you have to offer the community. Okay. You wrote a culture club that's a regular column that we have for the arts and humanities and it rotates among people who are writing things and you wrote one that is in today's Peninsula Pulse which is the December 8 issue and it was really fascinating to me because in less than 850 words you basically gave me an art history class and it was surrounding the new exhibit that you have there Newfangled formalism, industrialism. It's all about the modern art period, really. And you gave examples of it. That kind of instruction is very helpful before you go into a museum to have that experience, because otherwise, you're not going to know what to look for. You're not going to know what to see. I'm not normally a fan of abstract art, for instance, but the short description you gave of what that period of art was trying to achieve really helped me to see it in a different way. Is there something in the exhibit that allows a visitor to have some of that educational experience before they appreciate the art? Usually with me, I usually have some didactic materials because I approach exhibit building that everyone who's in a museum is in there for a different reason. And so to what level do I want to satisfy their potential motives, you know? So if I put a lot of writing, some people don't want to read all that writing. They just want to look for a few minutes and go. Some people don't even want to be there. They're holding someone's purse while someone else has an experience, right? I mean, you know, I try to offer them the possibility to have whatever level of experience they 
are there to commit to. Mm -hmm. And this particular show really is a learning opportunity. I used our collection. I was actually inspired by one piece in the collection. Seriously. So you're moving through the... So talk a little bit about how many pieces are in the collection first. We have 1,517 objects of art in the collection. The vast majority of those, only less than a dozen of those would be called three-dimensional objects. We're really a two-dimensional museum that has always been the focus. And And the difference between three-dimensional and two-dimensional is? For me personally, storage. So two-dimensional is something that is flat and hangs on the wall. I always say if I can hang it on the wall with one nail. Okay. It's a two-dimensional piece. Got it. Um, You know, less than seven inches deep or, well, I don't know. It could be an object is something like even a sketchbook would be considered an object. Small sculptures. We have a few beautiful small sculptures by James Ingerson and some small art pieces that were made. Um, We don't collect objects in general. You're walking through the collection and suddenly you're inspired by one piece. And what piece was that? And then where did it go from there for this current exhibit? So the piece that I was inspired by was called Game Board and it was actually used for our publicity and advertising. And it shows this checkerboard, like a chessboard with all these crazy different scenarios going on. So there's like a guy in a wheelchair and a police officer and Bigfoot and a girl taking her bra off. And there's just all these different characters moving across this game board and signage, sign signs, everywhere signs. And I just thought, wow, that it's so newfangled. And it was made in 1969, hmm. the, the piece, and by Robert Burkert. And it just screamed the modern art period to me. It was like everything you needed to know about modern art was in that piece. Interesting. You know? And so thus an exhibit is born. Thus an exhibit is born. Okay. I started thinking about What else do we have in our collection that could... I just started intellectualizing why that piece was talking about modern art to me, why it had so many of the components. I started thinking about what the characteristics of modern art really were. And I, for the exhibit, limited that to a few of the main and what I thought are the most important that feed into other characteristics. I mean, I've only got so much space. I can't tackle Mm -hmm. the entire modern art period. But for me, I identified formalism at the base, at the foundation of modern art. And then that led to abstraction. Photography had a huge influence. And then, of course, rationalism. These were the four major characteristics that I decided to focus on and identify and define for people. And then illustrate those characteristics through artworks from the collection. So I went in and I looked for five really good formalist pieces, five really good abstract pieces, three rationalist pieces, so that people could like read that card and get that information, whether they knew that information once upon a time or they had never heard that before. Mm-hmm. They'd never really had access to that before. And then they could see it on the wall right there. It was an example of it. And they could put the visual to the didactic. Hmm. And what time period does this span? So the modern art period really is like the 18th century, so the 1700s to the mid-1900s, the 20th century. That's a long time span. That's a long time span, but it was a slow break until it was a fast break. Mm. Um, you know, I, I look at human history and art history as completely one in the same, right? You have these periods, these great epochs of time 
you have, you know, the prehistory before we were really humans. And then you have the ancients, right? Then you have the medieval period. And then you hit the Renaissance, Mm. the rebirth. Now, for me, that's where the dividing line starts. That's really where modernity began, was in the Renaissance, though they were still committed to things in the past that held them back from really being modernity. Mm. But the influences that really stirred modernity to go into motion and become our now period come the now was the industrial revolution and the age of the enlightenment Mm. those two things inspired urbanization and a sense of individualism Mm. without the industrial revolution we would never have the massive sprawling urbanity that we have all over europe and the united states without the age of the enlightenment we would have no sense of ourselves as an individual Okay, and therefore people see their world and their place in it in different ways, and so artists would as well, and that would be reflected in their art. One part I found really interesting was the dawn of photography, and you had written a little bit about what artists were thinking about photography at that time, which would be the end or death of painting. Yeah, so if you've ever heard that saying, painting is dead, which actually plagued artists throughout the 20th century or the modern art period, you know, that comes out of photography. Photography was a new technology. 1839, it gets claimed to be invented in two different places. There was a, you know, it wasn't like a spontaneous thing. They were working towards that. They were racing to get the patent. You know, they they knew that they had technology in the same way that people are doing with AI today. They know they're on purpose to create that and they know where they're going with it. They don't know what the potential is, but they know where they're going with it and they're racing to stake claim. Right. Hmm. That's how photography was. It was a new technology. And at that time, you had artists immersed in formalism. Right. The art world, the painting world was newly unleashed from religious content. Hmm. They had decided to take the position that form and color and line and light and brush stroke and surface quality was the most important part of an artwork, not the content, not the subject, not not the subject, which would have been religious, right? Mm -hmm. Not the, it's, it's the recognizability, the naturalism, the realism, Mm. not its ability to replicate nature, right? Mm. Those were not important. So it's the how, so it's the how, right? The form and the color where you could have an emotional and intellectual reaction to the artwork. Hmm. That's that's what formalism says. And you see the Impressionists are the first fully formalist art movement, right? The Impressionists used formalism. They weren't really trying to make the Venice Canal look like the Venice Canal per se, right? But what they were doing is they were trying to capture the changes and fluctuations in color based on the movement of light. Hmm. They were dipping their brushes in thick, blobs of paint. Mm -hmm. There was a new invention that they put paint into tubes. Oh, right. That was new at that time. And so these, you know, the impressionists took advantage of that and they're being able to go outside with tubes of paint already made. They didn't have to crunch up talc and mix cadmium and they didn't have to do that. They had it already pre-mixed. So that was a facilitator 
to that perspective. And in the middle of that, you have photography gets invented. Hmm. Right. So as painters are rejecting painting to make it look like nature, photography has the ability to record nature with incredible accuracy. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, you know, now you have something that is very fast that's able to just give you an image that is exactly like what the image in nature is. Mm -hmm. So the famous quote, painting is dead, comes from the artist Paul Delaroche, who five years after the invention of photography, saw his first photograph and said, from now, painting is dead. <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen. Fortunately, his- that didn't happen, but it shows you the anxiety that was surrounding that technology when it first came out. And certainly we have a lot of anxiety about every technology that's come out ever since then. Yes. And AI art, I actually have a story that one of our reporters is working on for AI art mm-hmm. and where that is going, because that's a, an entirely new concept as well. All of these things that you're talking about is is why I was so excited to have you in here because I don't think people understand how much they can learn in such a short space of time while also appreciating these beautiful pieces that, I mean, because there is just the raw appreciation of art as well. I like the intellectualism behind it so that I'm a little bit guided in what it is that I'm looking at. But Anybody can go to the Miller Art Museum. You don't have a fee. We do not. We do not have a fee. We do take donations, but they are not required, and nobody pressures you to do that. Mm-hmm. It was really important to the founder, Gerhard Miller, and his contemporaries who helped build that museum that there was art available to everyone in our public, and I'm very committed to that as well. There's a lot of people out there who don't have access to art, you know, and the mm-hmm. fact that we're very, very central in downtown Sturgeon Bay and we're free, anyone can happen in and have an experience in art, no matter what their education or their experience of being able to interpret art may be. And I think that's really important Mm -hmm. from little kids to people with disabilities to, you know, someone who's just maybe living isolated or in poverty or is depressed or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, we're there. If they want to come in and just look at something for a few minutes or stay for a long time and have a bigger experience, we're there. The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. In one sense, your location in the Sturgeon Bay Library does make it more accessible because you're going into a library, but suddenly there is a museum mm-hmm. on your right-hand side. And in the front, you have a gift shop that has a lot of unique items in there as well. In another sense, it almost seems like it's not a museum because it is right there. And I know that the county board, I do cover the county board of supervisors, they've been talking about a different location for the museum. I know that those plans are not formulated now, but is that important to have 
a standalone location for a museum? Well, I would say two things about that. Yes, absolutely. It's important. That's important from, you know, the moment someone walks in your door that you're able to control their visitor experience. That's not necessarily true. And I'm not saying that that's a poor experience at the Door County Library, but when they walk in the door, they're in the library first. For a book. Before they're in the library first, before yes. they're in the Miller Art Museum. Even right. if they came to go to the Miller Art Museum, sure. they enter the library space first. So we don't control their experience walking in the door. So that is important in a museum. You are strategizing out, like I said early on, the experience that people may have when they enter your space. Also, visibility, you know, visibility and perception, all of those things affect us and whether or not people come and experience our exhibits. And sure. Miller Art Museum, fortunately, has a really long, solid history with the community and is, in general, given a lot of respect. Not everybody, but in general, I feel that it is a sort of a, a beacon of the community in the arts across Door County. But it is important. It is important what your facility looks like and how it feels. You could even have a really shiny new building that turns certain people away because it doesn't seem to include them enough. Mm. You know, it's not inviting. It's intimidating. So you really have to walk, for me, at this point in time, museums have to walk a fine line about how they design themselves and bridge that gap between being a spectacular space to be in, but also be an inviting space to just anyone. Mm. When you said visibility, I was trying to picture where the sign even is. I know that the right. Miller Art Museum is in the library, but where is the sign? I'm trying to think of how do people know that there's well, a right museum there? Well, right out on there? the corner there, there is a okay, sign. Okay, there is. I'm it just... says the Door County Li- Surgeon Bay Library and Miller Art okay. Museum. So our... Again, we're always connected in the verbiage to the library. And the other thing I wanted to say about that is the library-museum relationship is a historic relationship. I mean, all of Washington, D.C. is built on that, right? Mm-hmm. Usually those those museum-library combinations have a single mission in common, which is not true of us. Our library is serving the reading population of the community and serving as a safe space for people. The museum is doing something else. At the Smithsonian, let's say at the Native American Museum, you know, they have a library that's recording the history of the indigenous people of this country, right? Mm -hmm. Documents and things like that. So they have a mission that's very, very motivated in common. Sure. Not so true here, but it is a relationship that works. The visual and the intellectual together, it works. So in the future, perhaps that will be coming down the line. I know that they've had conversations about it at the county board level. I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between a museum and a gallery. Okay. I would imagine that walking into a gallery... I'm sometimes more reluctant to walk into a gallery because I feel pressured to buy something Mm -hmm. instead of just looking. In a museum, of course, you're not looking at purchasing the art, I don't think. Well, I'm trying to think if I, I don't think I've seen. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Galleries are businesses, Mm. right? And it's not that a museum isn't a business per se, but we're not for profit. So galleries are for profit. They are representing artists. We each serve a different, we serve artists in a different way and we serve the community in a different way. 
Galleries are in the business of representing artists and creating a career of sales, Mm. creating precedent and provenance of their sales records and their importance in that way. Now, some... Some galleries, like you may go to New York City and find a gallery that has really cutting edge contemporary artwork that, you know, it's video based or it's sound based, sound installations. And you think, well, gosh, who's buying that? And believe it or not, there are people who are buying that as investments for particular kinds of corporate spaces or museums or whatever. Sometimes museums purchase from galleries. Mm. But purchasing is the main divisionary of the gallery or the museum. Museums are spaces of learning and experiencing. So you don't go to a gallery to learn and experience. You go to the gallery to have a boutique experience in the arts. Museums, you go primarily to learn something about art, have an emotional and intellectual reaction to art, Mm. to be guided through some historical content or contemporary content. So it's content-driven. Galleries are not necessarily content-driven. Now, sometimes they are, but their primary thing is representing those artists in sales. Okay. You had spoken earlier about when you're looking at different exhibits that you might be doing to also consider what the mood is, what the art mood is of Door County, for instance. Mm -hmm. Do you have a feel for that of where Door County is in terms of what kinds of art is being produced here? Is there an overriding style or is it all over the place? Or something in between? I think there's an overriding style. I mean, Door County has a history of people coming here for its natural beauty. And, you know, the watercolorists of Door County, Chick Peterson, Austin Frazier, Bridget Austin, those legacy artists of, of Miller Art Museum, who we have documented, recorded, and provenanced, you know, that was a natural thing to happen in a place of this kind of natural splendor. I mean, mm. who wouldn't want to pick up a watercolor brush and paint these shorelines. I mean, Mm. it's a natural marriage. But there are people in Door County that aren't doing that. There's a lot of really interesting things, and it is a bit diverse in what people are thinking about. I'm always pushing them to stretch themselves. And one of the ways I push people to stretch themselves, not because what they're doing is not good enough, but because they can always continue to grow, Mm. right? You're not capped out as an artist you know, because you did something and that was successful. That's not the tap out for me. You could always continue to grow. And the way I encourage them is by the way I choose the art that I put on the walls for them to interact with. Hmm. So our artists can come in, aside from the general population who's just there to look at art, the artists of this community can come into our museum. And I have specifically picked what I picked on those walls, sometimes for certain groups of people. Interesting. Because I feel that it will really, I feel it will speak to the community at large, but I think it will really affect and impact people doing this kind of work or people who show tendencies towards. So I'm always kind of keeping 
these combinations of ways that, you know, I'm always strategizing out who the artwork might affect. And sometimes it doesn't work for some people. Some people come into the museum and they don't like the exhibit. And that's okay. Mm. You know, not every painting is for every person. Sure. But you've had an art experience. Mm -hmm. You came in and you saw and you didn't like and you formed an opinion and you had a thought and you made an argument and you had an emotional reaction and you intellectualized. Mm -hmm. And I did my job. Sure. And if you didn't see it, then you couldn't react against it. That's right. So, yeah, that's that's kind of cool, actually. It doesn't mean that everything is going to speak to every person who walks through the door, but they will learn more about themselves when they define themselves against something as well as for something. So sometimes it's easier to see when you have that contrast, actually. You know that painting American Gothic? Yes. Grant Wood? Yes, yes, the, yes. Maybe the, one of the more replicated, besides Van Gogh, one of the more yeah. replicated paintings and more joked about and commodified paintings in the world. That painting was an outrage when it came out. It was an absolute outrage. Why? It was was exhibited for the first time in the jury show at the Art Institute of Chicago, the Midwest jury show. They used to do that. And when it went on display, it won an award from the judges. But it caused outrage and made it a famous painting, made Grant Wood famous overnight pretty much because people from across the country were talking about how it... It defined Midwestern people as emotionless, lifeless. Interesting. And he was talking, I mean, he was a regionalist painter. So he was talking about Midwestern people as the salt of the American population during the World War I and World War II, that the farmlands, the heartlands of America held the country up. And so he was, he was a regionalist painter and that was what he was talking about. But other people felt that it had created a cliche out of the American farmer. And it kind of did. And it Kind of did. Yeah. But look how it has lasted through time. Sure. So having a bad reaction to an artwork is not necessarily the wrong reaction mm-hmm. for me. Like mm-hmm. I'm not upset. I don't I walk people through sometimes if they have a bad reaction to a painting. I've put some controversial things on the wall. I've pushed the audience in ways. You know, and I'm always there to kind of talk with them about what their reaction was and why they felt that way and why I made the choices I made. You had spoken, there are probably, well, I don't know how many galleries there are in Dora County. Maybe you know. There's a lot. I don't know. I can't keep track of that. (laughs) We ran a piece in the Peninsula Pulse not too long ago, and it was basically submitting to galleries and how to get a gallery to pick up your work and Mm -hmm. their submission requirements and, and that kind of thing. I was surprised to learn by that piece exactly how many Artists are constantly trying to get their works even into smaller galleries. Does the museum have a submission process? We don't have a formal submission process that is available like on our website. However, we are developing that because people reach out to me. They send me emails. They send me a bunch of pictures. They stop into my office. And the rules about it with museums are pretty much the same as the rules about it with galleries. We are constantly searching for opportunities for you as an artist. And artists are like actors. Mm. They're constantly auditioning. Yes. Right. Right. Submitting your artwork to a gallery or museum is not different from like going to an audition. Sure. 
or submitting your manuscript, you know, to publishing houses. That's right. You know, you are constantly self-promoting your own career and designing and scripting your own career. And you're experiencing a lot of no's and failures along that way. And then there's those successes. And those successes are so important. I see how important it is for artists. They tell me all the time how elated they are that they made it into the juried annual, you know, and they get Mm. one painting on the wall for two months, but that means so much Mm -hmm. because of what a struggle it is to get their work seen by people. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors about how to do that exactly. When people send me emails with images in it, I look at it. If you send me a proposal, I look at it. Mm -hmm. If I kind of think there's something maybe there, I print it out and I put it in a book. I have a book of like artists to watch. Mm -hmm. So I don't say that you want to inundate anybody with emails or phone calls or drop in with your portfolio. That's just an inappropriate thing that kind of doesn't show a lot of respect for people's time. But you could call and inquire. You could email and inquire. How do I do this with you? Do you accept submissions? And that's for Miller Art Museum or anywhere out there. Most museums don't accept submissions. They have Mm -hmm. curators that are out there seeking the conversations that they want to put on the wall. They're out there looking for people. We know who's doing what out there in the community. So. And that, the smoke and mirrors part of it that you talk about, it just brought to mind for me, I get a number of submissions from writers, and there are very clear guidelines that I can give somebody. However, if something comes in that isn't necessarily going along those channels, and yet it's clearly highly talented, then of course, all of those guidelines have subverted. Right. So that's kind of the smoke and mirror part of any art, I imagine. You know what it is that your museum or your gallery is looking for, your aesthetic, and you know it when you see it, I imagine. That's right. I do. And I trust my instincts on that, too. It's about the artist as well. You know, in the article that Tom Gronfeld wrote, which I'm really grateful for, that was a beautiful article. He did a fabulous job. It was in the Peninsula Pulse just the, a couple weeks ago. I yeah, think. it was actually, I think it was last Friday's yeah, Peninsula Pulse. Right. And it was about the collection and my management of the collection. And in that article, I said that paintings are living, breathing creatures. And really what I mean by that is that Every work of art contains a file cabinet full of stories. So it has the story that is just on the surface of its canvas that it is telling according to the artist who made it, right? What the artist meant is one of the stories on that canvas. But it also tells a story to every single person who approaches it and looks at it. That person who looks at that artwork has their own story that they bring to that artwork, and then the two of those get into a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Mind to mind, the painting and the and the viewer get into a conversation. And then there's the conversation that the painting tells about the person who made it, right? Containing the history of that person. We can put a Chick Peterson painting on the wall and enjoy it and sit there and talk about Chick Peterson for hours, Mm -hmm. right? As a person, as a painter, as a man, as a Door County personage. Mm -hmm. And then the painting also has stories to tell depending on what you put it next to, right? So Newfangled is a perfect example of that. I didn't approach those artworks to tell the story of the artist 
or of the artist's intention in making the artwork. I put those on the wall to tell the story of the thing next to it and the thing next to it on the left and the right as it pertains to art history, modernism. So Hmm. you can use paintings in so many ways, or artworks in general. They really are living and breathing depending on how you approach them. Hmm. You're an artist as well as a curator. Mm -hmm. So curator is your full-time job. I think of one of my favorite all-time books are the letters between Van Gogh and Teo, his brother. That just opened up. I read it because creative writing was my background before I got into journalism. And just his creativity and how he was so devoted to his art comes through in those letters in ways that I just can't even imagine a person being so driven by the creative and artistic spirit the way that he was. How do you, if you have a full-time job, what is art to you when you go into your studio to create? Obviously, it's not that's not your full-time gig where right. you're trying to put yourself out there as an artist like other artists might be trying to do. What does it give to you as a person when you're in the studio? I always say I am, you know, for the last however many decades, two or three decades, I've been sort of an artist in the closet because I made a choice at a certain point that my career was going to be in museums. I was either going to submit, 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 create collections and submit, create collections and submit, or I was going to get a job. And I was a single mom, so I decided to go into the career of museums. I I really had a penchant for it anyway. I really loved being in museum atmospheres, but I made a choice. And so I became this sort of part-time artist Mm. um, on the sidelines. And I just... At this point in my life, it's really hard for me to make art. It's hard for me to have the mental and emotional space for it. Sure. The time. Oil painting is a slow concentration. And for me, um, maybe that's one of the reasons I wanted to de-urbanize and isolate and go live in the woods. Because mm. I really, it's it's hard for me to find that kind of quiet space. But I've been setting myself up at my home to do that, and I'm doing that more and more. But, yeah, it's a choice. You know, mm-hmm. someone like Van Gogh, you know, poor poor Van Gogh. Yes, I, right? <laughs> I always say I'll be drinking absinthe in hell with Van Gogh because, you know, I mean, he had no idea. Think about it. He has, Seriously. He died not knowing he is who he is today. Exactly, which was crazy. Knowing, you know, I just, Even though he knew. He knew the whole time, yeah. which is what makes his story so compelling if you read yeah. those letters. Yeah. It didn't, nothing else mattered to him. Yeah. I mean, it was just really, really interesting. I know that when I, as I said, I came into this, I was going to be a creative writer, a novelist, short story. That's my educational background, and that's what I was doing. And then I got into journalism and just loved the realism of journalism versus sitting in a room and making up fake people, even though I still love reading fiction. But working with words all day, editing them, writing them, I can't even imagine then going home and getting into a creative space where I'm creating characters or writing creative writing. That's why I was curious about your dual role there, you know, and trying to make that shift 
It is so hard. I would say when I was younger, I was a more voracious person. Mm. I voraciously created. I would work all day, come home, feed every kid in the neighborhood, whoever was at my house when I got there. And <laughs> and then I would go and just run around the streets with my camera or draw or whatever it was that I was going to do, you know, or sewing. I, I'm a seamstress as well. So, wow. you know, whatever. I had all these outlets. And if I didn't really feel it with the painting one day, I would just grab my camera. But I was constantly doing something. I had this very high level of energy for it. I don't quite have that high level of energy anymore, um, but I am working on it. Your background, educational background, this might be interesting to somebody who might want to have a career in museum curation. Mm -hmm. You have a BFA in studio arts and a minor in art history focused on Roman antiquities. That's right. So is that the career path for museums or educational um, career path? Sure, it is one. I mean, it you can go you. to you can you can go to school for museum sciences. You can specifically become a curator. I actually was really interested in antiquities. I lived in Rome for almost a decade. And oh my um, goodness, yeah. And are you fluent in Italian? I am fluent in Italian. Okay, and you said I think your name. <laughs> Although Del some Tweetis. people would argue that okay. probably there's Italians out there that would say you're not that fluent, but you know. <laughs> I can speak Italian. And del Judas, that is Italian. That is, yeah. So okay. in, in Italian, it's del Giudice. Okay. Yeah, and it's spelled Much wrong. Much prettier. Because when I go to Italy, they comment on how I spell my name wrong because mm. in Ellis Island, they did whatever they were doing there and changed people's names. And so the American version is spelled wrong. I'm so you lived in Rome mm -hmm. and be because of your love for Roman antiquities. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I really, you know, if I wasn't in the curatorial and art world, I probably would have become an archaeologist or something of that nature. I, as a little girl, I wanted to be a marine biologist. That was like the first career. I was in love with Jacques Cousteau and <laughs> the ocean world. And I just, but I lived in Chicago. I didn't have much access to that. So I started getting interested in and where my love for museums and antiquities first comes into play is we went to see King Tut in the 1970s, which was the first museum blockbuster show that like went around the world as a blockbuster. Interesting. First museum that people lined up for hours and hours outside to get in. Wow. And I remember waiting outside with my father for two hours in a line to get into that show. Interesting. And when I got in there in those dark rooms with those glass cases with those gold things from the ancient world shining. I was just like enthralled. And so I really kind of wanted to go in that direction. I was really interested in those kinds of sciences. But I was also very creative and artistic. So I ended up moving more towards painting and, and things like that than those academic careers. Mm -hmm. I also didn't have the patience for academia mm. the way other people might have, sure. you know, the way that would be required for that kind of a career. Right. Well, Helen, you're doing wonderful things Thank for you. Door County and Sturgeon Bay and the Miller Art Museum. And I really thank you for coming in today. Yeah. We could probably talk for, well, when I extended the invitation, I said, I'd really like to talk with you because of your exhibit that you have out right now. And you responded, yes, any day is a good day to talk about art. Yeah, any it's, day is a good day to talk about art. I do it every day. Right. <laughs> so stop by the Miller Art Museum, which is in Sturgeon Bay at the Sturgeon Bay Library. Helen, thanks again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And you're listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. 
This podcast is produced by Miles Danhausen Jr. and edited by Rachel Lucas. If you want to help us continue to create more great episodes just like this one, visit our website at doorcountypulse.com. Thank you.